from here. Hello, wherever here is for you. Welcome to episode three of the fourth anthology of the Lucid Dreaming podcast, a space for conversation and reverie with moving image makers hosted by author and curator Pamela Cohn. Make some room, we're here to boom, with images about words and words about sounds. So let's begin. Hello, dreamers. Welcome to the Lucid Dreaming podcast. I'm Pamela Cohn. In this episode, I am so happy to welcome cinematographer and director Martin DiCicco as our guest. I first met Martin in 2017 in Brooklyn through mutual friend Eva Radovoyevich at a Union Docs post-screening discussion I was hosting there with Russian artist Sasha Kulak. A couple of years later, Martin and I re-met in Greece at the Thessaloniki Documentary Festival and got to know one another a bit better. Martin's most obvious aspect for me is his open-heartedness and a hunger to connect, but really connect, viscerally, intensely, unlike many creative individuals who yearn to develop their craft within the confines of an art or film school and then continue to work in a fundamentally sequestered way, Martin's education came from one of internship, apprenticeship, many years spent as a working craftsperson taking on anything at all. As Martin describes it, some of the most banal made-for-TV movies of 2004 to 2012. This enabled him to learn, absorb, relearn, reabsorb, and then fly off on a journey of his own to faraway horizons and landscapes, ones that continue to call to him. While he's worked and continues to work as a cinematographer for some of today's most exciting nonfiction directors, the aforementioned Radovoyevich, Brett Story, Cecilia Alderondo, among others, in 2011, Martin embarked on a years-long project that resulted in a gorgeous feature work entitled All That Passes By Through a Window That Doesn't Open, an elegiac montage of stories told by men who measure time by kilometer, distance by border, as they build a transnational railway across the Caucasus. The film is demarcated in three sections. Part one, Azerbaijan, the engineer sees the future. Part two, Armenia, the brakeman sees the past. And only for the last five minutes of the film do we come to part three, the train ride with a window that doesn't open, through which the passenger sees the present. Upon its debut at the Vision du Réal Festival in Nyon, Switzerland in 2017, the film won Best Premier Film in the Regardneuf competition. In 2018, Martin made a haunting six-minute piece shot in black and white called Barada Toprak Yok, Here There Is No Earth, a testimony about a shepherd's encounter at the Turkish-Armenian border, a frontier sealed since 1993. The shepherd's name was Mustafa Ulker, and it is his cousin Gurpus who tells the story of how Mustafa was fatally shot in the back by border guards whilst retrieving the grazing animals in his care. It was one of dozens of stories Martin encountered in the years he spent living in Azerbaijan and Armenia while filming All That Passes By. In 2020, Martin was awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship in Film and Video and is currently in development on his second feature film, Untitled Exclave Project, described as an allegory of separation and alienation, where physical isolation from a nation, while still being within the borders of that same nation, creates a singular psyche, a collective anxiety, that permeates the daily life of the inhabitants there. With this new project, Martin will once again endeavor to traverse the metaphoric, physical, and symbolic facets of geography's most curious anomaly, called the Exclave, drawing on his previous explorations of borderlands, where the interim or temporary status of a no-man's land turns out to be quite often a permanent state of affairs. In this episode, and in this anthology in general, we wanted to specifically explore the relationships and collaborations that emerge between a maker's complex vision and the individuals portrayed in front of his or her camera lens. Out of all the accoutrements attached to making transcendent moving image work, this is by far the most mysterious and ineffable aspect of working in nonfiction. 
It's something that particularly resonates quite strongly with Martin's thoughtful work. He writes that filmmaking, like fishing, is an activity that cannot be rushed, and the outcomes are never certain. There is a lot of waiting. Time stretches out and thus becomes thinkable. This is a part of the process. I can't always articulate the why or how of things I film or will film. A couple of what he calls reminders to himself to guide this process, which we discuss at length in the upcoming hour, are as follows. Let the location not only inform, but dictate how I film. If people don't want to be filmed, then I film the trees, the buildings, the trash, the sunsets, and the dogs. I will not forget I'm a foreigner with a camera, nor purport to know a place or its people. And finally, not everything said or presented to me is true, so I will not make the audience think so either. Welcome to the Lucid Dreaming Podcast, Martin. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. I'm glad you're here too. Um, I'd like to start with your professional background, your apprenticeships, your internships, your working life as um, an electrician, a grip, um, an assistant cameraman, because the majority of makers that make work like you are doing now usually have quite different backgrounds. You know, they don't necessarily really have that um, paying your dues type of thing on sets. You know, once in a while, you'll find someone who does something professionally that does ha doesn't have anything to do with filmmaking and simply, you know, works in this sort of more circumscribed way. Um, maybe never even having been on a set before. And I just wanted to sort of start there and have you describe um, what's being pulled through um, from those experiences, um, not necessarily the, the content of what you were making, but the, the way in which you watched firsthand, you know, things being created. Um, and, and how that informs what you're doing now, or does it, I mean, it, it, it was a sort of, you know, leap of faith in a way, you know, to, to sort of cross over into this more independent world of filmmaking. Um, so I just would like to start by having you talk about, um, the, not the differences so much, but more how one informs the other. Um, yeah, I mean, I was living in LA for a very long time, working on everything. Yeah, uh, really bad music videos, some good music videos, um, lots of bad Hallmark and Lifetime movies. Um, but those were, you know, were really fun to work on. They were they were good training grounds, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, I, I had always wanted to be a cinematographer, but I, I did, it felt like it was really quite difficult to, to do that. Um, but I was, I was very much into like the tactileness of, of being, like that's why I was an electrician. It was a lot more interesting to me to be setting up lights and figuring out how to, to place them and all this stuff rather than be a camera assistant. Um, mm -hmm. and, um, but after a while, I mean, I think it was actually just with one film, um, was the first doc, like documentary that I had shot, um, was a f my friend, Nick Sherman asked me to shoot this film he wanted to make about a nature sound recordist. Um, and it was, it ended up being called Sound Tracker. He finished it, but it was such a fun kind of, um, experience. We shot like on and off for three years or something like that, um, following this, this soundtracker, Gordon Hempton around, uh, mm -hmm. around the country. And this was when I was like, oh, wow, this is quite fun. We, I had no equipment, just one, you know, a camera and a shotgun mic, but like, I'm actually living an experience in my life while I'm doing it. And it, it was quite, um, you know, it was, a, it was this, it was, it was a quite an amazing experience because yeah, uh, working on set was really fun too, but I wasn't having like any life experience in it. Mm -hmm. 
And so I think that's what kind of initially attracted me to it. Um, and then, yeah, I think that I also, at the time, um, I was also working in LA for an artist who does, who at the time primarily worked in, um, in drawings and Carl Handel is his name. And I was, I knew nothing really about art, but I was his studio manager. And, um, it was, it was an experience where I watched him and his, his kind of ethos of the studio was like, you have to go in like it's a regular job and just make, make work, make work, make work, make work. And I think that, um, that's a lot like documentary filmmaking is you keep, there's a lot of just shoot for the sake of doing it or just show up. It might not be a good scene, but you have to show up every day and do it. Um, so I think a lot of these experiences kind of influenced, um, my own work, I guess. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you, you've also worked with other, some of the most exciting, you know, makers, nonfiction or otherwise, um, both in the short form and in feature length, and then through the process of co-writing as well. Um, and I wanted to know how your experience with, like, let's say with Brett making, you know, the hottest August and, you know, I, I've, a lot of the makers that you've worked with, I, I feel like there were some seminal lessons there, particularly with the way in which that collaboration of you being the, the eyes of a director who is handling a lot, you know, at the time, because there is um, Landfall and Hottest August and, you know, all of these films have this way, um, have this approach, let's say, um, that is not necessarily linear, that is not necessarily even going out every day and shooting just to see what you can get. It's more of a very, it's a vision, you know, like what you probably, I'm assuming, eventually had for all that passes as well. You know, this, this larger, more unwieldy, um, complex vision um, and wanting to illustrate all of those things without coming at it in a very um, workmanlike way, in a very logical way, in the way, you know, we sort of think of things playing out. Um, these are films that, like All That Passes, which I want to get more into in a minute, um, it's all in the subtleties. It's all in what the frame is holding. It's all in you know, how open or closed the aperture is. There's a real cinematic language there. And I'm wondering if you could just sort of like unpack a little bit of, of that experience. I mean, maybe even by thinking of a particular instance or two when you were out in the field and how that felt, how that collaboration sort of manifested um, and informed again, the way you yourself would direct your own projects. Um, yeah, I, um, I mean, in particular with working with Brett on Hogs August, um, I don't know, Brett, <laughs> Brett maybe, um, may disagree with me, but, um, at the time that we had shot, I don't know if Brett fully had a complete like idea mm -hmm. of what the film would be yet. And I definitely didn't. And I don't think that I had you know, 100% of the ideas that she had. She hadn't, I don't think, shared with me all of those ideas about what the film would be. So in a way, while we were shooting, um, she she gave me a lot of freedom to kind of, we would be together, but she gave me a lot of freedom to just film what, what, what I wanted, what we saw. Um, there was There was not a lot of direction about this. We would say, she would say something like, oh, this is interesting. Um, this guy selling watermelons out of a truck. That's kind of an interesting scene. But then while she's there, she's not looking over my shoulder, get, mm -hmm. get this, get this, get this. Um, so in a way, working with her on that film was something that was quite freeing to let me do whatever I wanted, basically. Um, and then I had no idea how that film was going to get put together at the after it, afterwards. Um, so it was really quite 
interesting to see and amazing and, and delightful to see how it all came together. Um, a lot of all my, my motivation for shooting certain things in all the passes by was, um, was kind of in, intuitive. I mean, it was just waking up and, and being there and just like figuring out something to shoot on that day. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I had um, a certain methodology in actually when I was filming. Um, mm -hmm. I think that a lot of kind of influences, a lot of that comes together um, in post. And I think that working with Brett, I think I was informing her way of work, working in post, right? Um, and then editing with Eva and all the passes by, I think that was just something that I had all this raw material that I didn't have any kind of motivation of why I had it, but then we figured out a way that it fit together. And a lot of that came from her sensibilities of what, what she liked and what she liked to cut together. Um, I don't know if that totally answered your question, but. It did, it did. I mean, only because that, this leads into my next question. I mean, first of all, I'm very curious how you even found yourself in that region and why it was so meaningful for you um, to tell that story. And specifically, you know, like if you're, you're in that place, you're in that landscape, you're in a different culture, different language, different sensibility, but yet, you know, this means that you're probably picking up things that, you know, most people wouldn't notice. Um, and I'm interested to know when you started to shoot the men, when you started to, you know, really have access to their daily life, you know, they're literally eating, sleeping, waking, working, celebrating. Um, that intimacy is, um, rare. <laughs> it's not, I mean, you, you can talk about intuition and you can talk about, um, you know, maybe not knowing purely in a logical way what it is you're after, but there's a way in which this rapport, let's say, between you and your camera in between and those men, there is an energy there. Um, and I'm wondering if you could describe what that felt like, you know, when you realized they had so much to give you, but probably in ways that they weren't even aware of. Um, I just think of scenes where I just feel like there's a sense of bewilderment, <laughs> maybe about what you were doing, but also a sense of pride that they felt like I mean, maybe this sounds a little dopey, but like that they were seen, you know, I mean, and by a foreigner and by someone who really, you know, an outsider who was coming into their world to document something um, that he didn't even know, you know, what, what that was. It was just hearing the stories, the, the smells, the food, the landscapes, it all when I watch that film and I've seen it a few times now, it just, it's like this beautiful swirl of sensation, even though it's, we're looking at a flat image. And if you could articulate a little bit about, you know, a certain day where you felt, um, where you really felt that connection, you felt like whatever you would walk away with in terms of footage, there was an aliveness and there was a collaboration um, with you and with your camera and the way they story told. Um, so I would, I would love for you to talk about that because there's a very distinct way in which each filmmaker works with his or her protagonists in front of the camera. Um, but I'm not quite sure you ever had those very sophisticated conversations with them about performance and about nonfiction and about all the things that we tend to talk about within our own milieu. So, but they seem to understand something fundamental about that nonetheless. Um, and so I'm wondering if you can sort of talk about that, that realization that, that some kind of, um, conduit uh has been opened yeah i mean it's funny you bring up being a foreigner because i think it has a lot to do with what you're talking about mm -hmm. in here 
or my experience on this. Um, you know, it's this, this. You could do a whole nother episode about like the foreign gaze or or <laughs> what what role there is in in, in directing in a different country and. Um, you know, and I, I've gotten shit for that before about. Well, you know, like, people, it, you seem discomforted in a way, even trying to talk about it because there, there has been this wave of sort of like, I don't know, is it ethical? Is it moral? Is it right for a person who doesn't belong in a certain milieu to step in with the camera and record? It is, it's become very touchy. Yeah. So I just want to acknowledge that, that like, yeah, that is going on, of, yeah. of course. Um, but in a way, and this is my retort because uh, to this, uh, to that argument, um, which is like, I, I, I was greatly aided by the fact that I was a foreigner. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if, first of all, let me just make a distinction that um, most of the Azerbaijani workers that I was filming with for, there was one camp in particular that I was um, kind of, you know, traveling and living with, but they were traveling around Azerbaijan. And in one portion they were, where I first met them was actually in Georgia because they were building the, the railroad in Georgia. Um, so when I met them, they were all in Georgia. Um, now, when I met them, if I was an Azerbaijani filmmaker mm -hmm. walking up to my fellow compatriots and saying, I want to make a film here, film you making this railroad like it would have been a completely different dynamic and I think that maybe I would have they would have been less receptive to me being there um so I think that the fact that I was a foreigner especially from the U.S. they were quite happy and and you know looking at me a bit like a like a like an alien from another planet um it was amusing for me to be there too um and I think the same goes for Armenia. In that station in Armenia, they've had many foreign um, journalists go and, and newspapers write about mm -hmm. that station. Um, mm -hmm. And so in that respect, they were amused that I was there, but they had seen it before. Um, so I wasn't interesting to them, but I kept coming back. And that was the, that is kind of where we, that was the spark of it. Um, and I think that with the Azerbaijani guys, I was a foreigner, but I could speak crude Turkish to them. Mm -hmm. That's how we communicated. Mm -hmm. um, so we didn't talk about deep things because I didn't have the language skills to talk about deep things. Um, however, I understood basically what they would be talking about. Um, and that helped me a lot. I think if I was a total foreigner and needed a translator for them, Mm -hmm. it wouldn't have worked out. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that this, this kind of moment you speak of, I think that that happened actually quite a little bit later in, in the process of shooting, but um, they had a problem with a, a group of them, maybe eight of them had a problem with not getting paid uh, over and over and over again. And the, the railway office was located in Tbilisi in Georgia. Mm -hmm. And they had been, most of their time had been, they'd been working 30 minutes from Tbilisi, but they had actually never been there before. Um, and so they were having this, this problem with money and I was talking to their boss and, you know, nobody really wanted to help them out. Um, so I said, why don't you all, like, I have a car, why don't you all, I'll take you to the office tomorrow morning. Um, and so anyway, I brought them to Tbilisi. They stayed at my flat and they had, they told me while they were there, they were like, oh, we've never been to the city before. We've always you know, <laughs> heard about it. And I was like, what, Why? how can you? So it was this kind of amazing night we had, actually it was a couple nights because they ended up not paying them. Um, but we were going to the office every morning and trying to get them paid. And then they were ended up not getting paid. And then we just spend the rest of the day, I would take them around and show them stuff in the city and it was quite nice for them um and then on the last day the day before they got paid it was another day that they didn't get paid and i kind of lost it because i was sick of going there and i started 
I don't it, I don't think it made sense, but I was just basically using every curse word I knew in, in <laughs> Turkish, yelling at their boss uh, at the railway office. And um, they were quite taken back by this. Um, but it was a real bonding moment. And we had like the, the best night that last night, um, you know, going around to restaurants and stuff and walking around the city in Tbilisi. And a lot of that made it into the film because I was just filming them having fun around the city. And mm -hmm. that was a really kind of special time for, for me and those, those uh, eight guys. Mm -hmm. the, the way in which, I mean, this is, this is a, a method of narration, um, but this voiceover, you know, and the way the voices and images are mixed, um, and again, you know, this may have been more in the writing process with Eva than it was obviously while you were shooting, but there's a way in which anti or counterintuitively, when you can't quite identify which voice is going with which face, but you're, they're storytelling, they're storytelling. Um, this way in which that intimate lone voice is in your ear while you're watching these images uh, was was that what you had in mind I mean or or were you were you hoping to accomplish a much more sort of verite style in the way you wanted to tell this or maybe you didn't even know at the time um, the answer to this question but I'm curious that um I think there's such a misconception, and this is what I really want to get to the heart of, of, of how you make a documentary, of how you make a nonfiction film, of how you portray real people um, who are appearing in front of your camera lens. Um, I, I think it's Penny Lane who has this kind of jokey thing on her on her profile that says, you know, when she, I think she was doing a Google search. And she, this question came up, like, do documentaries have directors, you know, this kind of notion that they just kind of, you show up with your camera and some kind of magical thing happens, and then you edit the scenes together and voila, you have a film. Um, but in the sense, you know, when you watch the film and you see this sort of the lopsided chapters, the, the, the notions of time and space are very malleable, in fact. Um, and I think all the interpretations that can be made can be made for whatever you want to say about that. But I'm curious to know in terms of when you sat down with everything you had shot and started this writing process, what were the key components for you in terms of style, certainly, but also in terms of pacing, in terms of the style in which you would tell this film? Because it's a it's an economical film, you know? I mean, it's it's not something that sort of wanders. It's quite tight and it's quite deliberate in the way things are connected. And it has this beautiful emotional build that is mysterious, you know? You can't really point to one or two things um, that evoke that kind of emotional response. Um, if you could talk a little bit about that process and about the feeling that you had as you just described shooting with these guys, and I'm assuming wanting very much to pull that into the edit somehow, to pull that, that joy and that, you know, that connection with these, these guys um, that you had with this experience and be able to share that with complete strangers. Um, yeah. I mean, I will say that um, this film, I started working on it in 2011 mm -hmm. um, is when I kind of conceived of, of working on it and finished it in 2016. So it was a good portion of uh, time that was being spent on this film. And I will say that when it, what the, the film's conceived in 2011, 2012 is quite different than the final film. Um, it beginning, when I first started shooting, it was, very much had to do with let's talk about the geopolitics of, mm -hmm. of this region let's explain you know um when i would explain what the film is to people i'd be like okay well 
you know, back in uh, the Russian Revolution. And then <laughs> explain, there was a lot of history I had to explain before I got to actually where I was filming. And when I started out making the film, uh, it was, it was very much kind of like, a, I was, it was going to be a political film. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I got uh, less and less interested in that as time went on, but, but toward the end of the film, toward the end of the process, um, I think I shot the most stuff that was interesting to me. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that I had like this personal crisis in my life and I moved out of LA, I moved to Tbilisi full time to work on the film. And I had, you know, I had no friends there except for um, these guys that I was, that I was like staying with. And I had nothing, no, you know, responsibilities or anything except make this film. Um, and so it was like every day I was trying to do something. So a lot of it was filming stuff and feeling lost in general in my life. Um, and so I would say that when we, when I finished the film, like when I was done shooting, I had like assembled half of a hard drive filled with, you know, there were some interviews with some people even on my first trip that I made. I would say half the hard drive was like explanatory kind mm -hmm. of things. And then half of it was just a bunch of what I consider junk that was like me being depressed and sad and lonely and, and filming stuff to reflect that, that had to do with me. And so, you know, I hadn't intended to use any of that stuff. Um, you know, when Eva came on to edit it, it was like, she was like, no, 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 we're not going to use any of that <laughs> interviews about geopolitics. Forget that. I want this stuff. Um, and so that's kind of how, like, a, a reduced way of thinking of how it kind of came together. But I would say specifically with the narration. So originally the film was going to be, I was also shooting in Turkey and um, with some other people in Georgia. And so it was going to be in four parts instead mm -hmm. of um, two countries. There was going to be all four countries. Mm -hmm. um, and in the editing process, basically Eva was like, one of the parts wasn't working. And so she was like, we need to take this part out. I was like, what, the whole country? And she's like, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, well, then we're left with these other three countries. Like this Georgian part that we were shooting um, wasn't working. And she was mm -hmm. like, we have to take it out. And I was like, well, if we take it out, we have to take Turkey out too, because it won't make sense to have Turkey, Armenia, Azerbaijan. And so she's like, all right, then if we have to take that, then we need to take out Turkey too. And I was like, okay. Suddenly we had like a 15 minute movie. Um, <laughs> so I was like, what the, so I remember she said, I said, well, so what do we do now? And she's like, you got to come up with the, 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 you know, the rest of the movie. And I was like, how do I do that? She's like, I don't know. Here's a, some paper. Here's a pen. Start writing. And I was like, what are you going to do? And she's like, I'm going to just do my own thing. And I was like, what the fuck? Um, and so the narration really came out of that ar around trying to build up the rest of the movie. So suddenly we cut out half the film. It was just Armenia, Azerbaijan. Um, she really, she was, she actually prompted me to figure out the rest of the film by saying, just write down stuff, just start writing about your experience while you were filming. So I kind of like wrote this journalistic type for a couple of days, uh, journalistic type like entries, diary entries about just my entire filming process. Mm -hmm. um, like what I was experiencing when I was filming, when, when I was back in the US, things that had nothing to do with the film that were going on in my life. So it was basically like summarizing the last five years. Um, and so we started talking about that and I kind of realized while I was writing it that, um, as I said before, I can speak to them about, to the Azerbaijani guys I can speak to about daily life stuff, but I can't talk about my life really with them. Any kind of, you know, abstract concepts or things like that because I didn't have the language skills for that. So I realized while I was writing all this stuff down, I was like, wow, a lot of stuff has happened in my life. My feelings about this film have changed a lot in the last couple of years. I, want, I don't think that they have any idea about that. So a lot of the narration was, was I wrote out basically a narration about my feelings about the film or, or, or my, my experiences on the film as mm -hmm. if um, we were editing in Greece and I flew back for 
to, uh, to Georgia for three days. And I had like this dossier of like, this was Martin's experience making the film with you guys. And I had it, we had it translated in Azerbaijani and I went with my Azerbaijani friend to talk to them. And it basically sat four or five of the guys together. And I was basically sharing, this is what happened in my life. I don't, I never gave you a proper window into my life or who I am, and this is it. And I read them this, this thing in, in Azerbaijan. Um, and then I said, I, and I brought a recorder and I said, I would like you to kind of tell me what your experiences have been while I've been filming with you over the past year, five mm -hmm. years. And so all of that ended up being the voiceover of these five guys. Mm -hmm. um, and then so we picked stuff out. So I got to translate it back into English and then, and then Eva would look through and pick out, oh, this is a good, this is good, this is good, this is good. Mm -hmm. um, and some of, some of that is, some of the narration is actually um, things that I had shared about my life with them that they had then repeated back or, or piggybacked on their experiences mm -hmm. um, that had to do with that theme. So for instance, they were talking about their military service and I had talked about some time I did in jail and we, were, we would kind of share that experience together. So there's a specific line about like time kind of expanding or, or time stopping and while he was in military service and things being punctuated, he could tell time by when they were, um, uh, oh, sorry, this is about when he was working, but about the military service that he said he was not afraid of. He was not afraid of, um, he was not afraid of being at the front line, but he was um, instead afraid of like time being mm -hmm. unending while he was in the service. So this came about from us talking about kind of a mutual uh, situation of being forced into, uh, somewhere you didn't want to be. Yes, on the Dictale Arage, a Samson is a gastertas not tagantai. Pice Messa Halam Tultavetsu, Sana bürüyür, saçitleştirir, korkudur. Bazen sızıldayır, bazen gürüldayır. Dilime göre Çin'den kesecek. Zaman gösterecek. It's interesting that these, the more sort of complex, you know, higher philosophical ways of, of talking about those things um, couldn't have happened though, even at that much later stage, if that, if that rapport hadn't been set, you know, beforehand, do you know what I mean? It's very, it's interesting to hear about this process because they have everything and almost nothing to do with, you know, with how the film came about, although there is a distinct collaboration. I mean, what did they think when they actually saw it put together? Because um, there is a way in which, you know, you're also putting together side by side, you know, cultures and people who have a very bad history and and it's the unknown it's there's so much like you said they hadn't even been to to 
Tbilisi, you know, in that was just a half an hour away. So, I mean, this circumscribed existence in a sense, or this solitary existence in a sense, turns out to be this really gorgeous sort of universal feeling um, that whether it's jail or the military or some other circumstance that I think, I hope every human being, you know, goes through several times in their lives. Um, so that's actually, it's actually really fascinating to hear you um, talk about that timeline, you know, and the way those elements work themselves in um, out of necessity, you know, um, out of need, you know, to sort of figure out what's going to hold everything together um, because you're kind of, you're embarking again on another project that's, it's still in development. I don't, have you, you've shot just research footage or have you, where are you in this whole thing? Cause it's such, again, it's sort of, um, I don't know what all that passes by looked on paper um, in the beginning, but now, of course, you know, you have this very substantial project in a sense, um, your second feature um, that is dealing with the same themes, but is really like stating its complexity right at the outset, you know, and it is about geopolitics. It is about um, these hard borders um, and in a sense that isolation, that way in which, you know, something temporary um, or a set of circumstances and a, and a time frame um, has surpassed its sell-by date by, you know, years and years and years and years and years. And I'm really interested, maybe you're not ready to talk about this, but I'm very interested in how one would think about cinematizing um, that kind of collective, I don't know what it is. I mean, I don't know how you interpret that. Um, being part of something, but being a part also, um, meaning there's a divide that cannot be crossed. And there's so many ways in which you could approach this and you're approaching it in terms of place, a physical place again. Um, so I'm just kind of wondering how the experience the long experience of making all that passes by. Um, it, it sounds like you want to explore maybe what you didn't get to accomplish perhaps in, in this, in this earlier, in this first film. Maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, it's hard to talk about this new film for a couple of reasons, but let me just address something you had said you had asked about earlier first you uh, about them seeing the film yeah sorry um, we skipped over that <laughs> well so i mean one of the interesting things is that when i was recording them telling me about their life about like specific things in their life there was i took them like one by one into my car so it was me my translator and and the, and one of them um and we basically sat for like an hour and a half or two hours for each person. Um, and they were, they, I started asking them a lot of questions about, you know, tell me about, um, of the people that I had inter that I interviewed, of the people that I picked to like kind of talk to me, um, none of them were married. So I was, I was saying, you know, tell me about like what you, what you think about your future um, partner or anything like that. And so, they were like, why, what do you mean? I'm not talking to you about that. And I, and I kind of realized that none of them actually ever talked about anything having to do with love, you know, among each other. Um, so it was really hard to get some of these moments out of them. But once, once we spent 40 minutes saying nothing and they were dodging, answering questions about love, um, then they opened up and mm -hmm. One in particular, it's in the film, talked about this, you know, this woman that he regrets um, never professing his love for. Um, and so when I went and showed them the film, uh, before it played at festivals, I went back to both Armenia and Azerbaijan to, to show them. And uh, in Azerbaijan, we rented like, I rented like this 
this like one of their one of their cousins or something had this banquet hall like a wedding hall and we, we I rented that and we played it and there were like um you know probably like 25 guys who came uh, I told everyone invite your mother invite your grandmother your sisters your parents so they could see your life nobody showed up with their parents <laughs> it was just the guys and their their buddies um but this the this the one who told that loves that that story about the the, the regret he came up to me um and he said do you remember that story i told you i was like yeah yeah he said is it in the film i said yeah he said this is right before it started he said he said okay i don't really remember what i said but i remember mm -hmm. i told you about that i just want to make sure that it's not in the film and i was like no it's in the film he's like well let me see so it starts to play and then that first kind of line comes up and he like he walks away. I was sit standing in the back. He comes up to me and he says, you have to take this out of the movie, take this out of the movie. And I said, no, just, just, just wait, just wait, just watch it. And so he, he went and sat back down and nobody, he was expecting everyone to be laughing at him when he says mm -hmm. this mm -hmm. and none of the other guys were laughing at him. Um, so after the movie, he, I came up to him and I said, is it okay that, you know, that that's in the film, I'll take it out if you really want to, but in the context of seeing the whole film, do you, is it okay? And he said, yeah, I feel good that it was in the film and that I was able to share that. Um, so that made me feel really good, you know, that they were able, that he was able to kind of share that with me and then share it with the rest of his friends, with, mm -hmm. you know, in an indirect way, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, so if he had insisted though, that you take that really gorgeous scene out, what would you have done? Um, I would have taken it out. I mean, I, you know, because I, I wouldn't be able to watch the film again, ever again, mm. with it, knowing that I used something that they didn't want me to use. Um, mm. I mean, this was the thing, was showing them the film, I was like quite nervous about it. Um, and because it's Armenian Azerbaijan, the interesting thing about showing them and also why I was nervous is that, um, you know, there's so much propaganda on either side um, in the media about the other country. Um, about the other people, about, you know, a lot of that. And the young guys, especially who were born after, you know, um, Soviet Union, they don't have any experience. The older guys had to have, they had neighbors, they had, they worked with people, they traveled throughout the Soviet Union. Like they saw people from other, from Armenia and mm -hmm. Azerbaijan, you know, and, but the young guys never, they didn't know any Armenians, you know, um, and so they're kind of, they had, a lot of them have like this very warped idea of what Armenia was because all they did was watch state-sponsored mm -hmm. propaganda on television. Mm -hmm. um, and so for them to watch, it, here's the thing, when, when in the, the Azerbaijani guys, there was 25 of them throughout the movie, they were all talking and taking pictures of themselves. And, you know, it was kind of a raucous viewing. And then as soon as, their part ends and it goes to Armenia and it comes up Armenia, like everyone shut up and everyone was just, just watching. Nobody said anything to each other, no whispers, no nothing. Um, it was silent throughout the whole time. And afterward, I was like, I mean, this was like quite an interesting moment to me. And afterward, um, I said, did you, you know, I asked them all, like, what did you think of the movie? And they were like, oh, it was fantastic, but you should cut the Armenian part out. <laughs> and, I was, and I was like, why? And they said, it's too long. You should have made more of the movie about us and less about them. Um, and, and then when I, I went to Armenia afterward to show Hagop and some friends. Mm -hmm. And so he had, had almost not, he had a different experience, but he said almost the same thing afterward, um, after the movie. I said, did you like it? Are you okay with yourself in it? And he's like, yes. And he said, but you should have made uh, my part longer and cut out a lot of that Azerbaijani stuff. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it was also interesting for him to watch because he, as an older man who was part of the railway system for so long, mm -hmm. he, he said afterward, he said, wow, I can't believe that they're building this new railway. They're, they're using the, they're building it in the exact same way that when I used to build things that we built it. So he was like, so, which is saying two things. One is a nostalgia or, you know, also maybe an envy that they're building something new and, and he's just sitting there, right? 
Mm-hmm. But it also says something about he, he knows that Azerbaijan has oil money and he sees in his propaganda that Azerbaijan is super rich and all this stuff. And he's like, wait, this rich country, they're building stuff the exact same way that we built stuff in the 80s. So, you know, I don't understand that. Um, so it was interesting for him to see the film and, and kind of reflect on the differences and similarities between the railroad workers just across the border, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting because the, it really, for me, like the title of the film is so evocative of so much, but I, this last time I watched the film, I thought a lot about what it's called and, and, you know, titles as we know are so important and I'm always fairly disappointed a lot, much of the time um, about the titles people choose. You know, they're quite literal, um, as if you're supposed to know what the film might be about before you watch it. But re-watching it again, it's really that part of the, the window not opening <laughs> that I kind of, you know, because that aperture, that kind of, you know, stubborn way in which that stays closed. You know, you have to look at something through a barrier. Um, and, you know, metaphorically and poetically, it's, it's just, it's beautiful, you know, and so this idea that you're stepping into with this notion of exclave, which is honestly a word I've never heard before, um, you know, also really speaks to that um, way in which your eye, your sensibility, your camera eye, your lens, um, you know, can play with all of those things in a very um, fluid way. Um, it's almost kind of like the ideal um, metaphor, in a sense, um, for that creative process you just described to me with Eva, you know, this sort of intuitive way you can go along for a certain period of time, but then some sort of structure, some sort of thing that can stand and hold things um, has to happen. You know, I mean, it's like, it's a necessary thing. It's like, that's where the storytelling is. Um, and you talk about in, in what you wrote about this new project, this, this notion of, um, I don't know, these, these, Colonial, the, the colonialist ways that have taken things, but then you say, and the very last thing are people's stories. You know, it's like, I don't know, I, you've only made one feature and moving on to your second, but it's like, oh, I feel like, oh, I'm looking at a maker here. I'm looking at an artist here who's sort of, um, you know, found this kind of vein you know, you can tap into in so many ways. I mean, I'm sure it's daunting and intimidating and confusing now, but it's also filled with such wonderful possibility. Um, and I just wanted to know maybe how you feel now embarking on this. Um, is it any different or are you still just this lost, lonely, confused person wandering around with his camera trying to figure out what to shoot? Um, yeah, I mean, um, how I feel about this new project has changed a lot in this particular year of 2021. Um, you know, the film ha itself had, I had all these grand plans and everything before COVID, I was going to mm -hmm. go travel to all these countries that obviously didn't happen. And, um, but I've, okay, basically, yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that about what this man said in Morocco to me about, about you know, our, our stories being the last thing that are taken away, right? Um, or the last thing they can guard, he actually said. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, earlier, the, basic, earlier this year, um, Hagop, the man in Armenia, uh, killed himself. Mm -hmm. And... Um, it really has made me think about this, like, why am I making another film? Why am I going to a place that's outside my house, meeting with somebody and filming with them um, 
for what? And and I've thought a lot about this year um, what my relationship was with Hago and what my relationship what what the, what making all the passes by has done for me and for him. Um, and you know, it's something that I, I'll probably never really know his reasons mm-hmm. or his turmoil. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, they're my trying to understand what happened to him has been difficult. I'm speaking with his daughter, um, well, texting with his daughter. Um, and, you know, I don't understand a lot of it, but a lot of like this grief I have over that situation has to do with guilt too. It has to do with, you know, all the past five did, did pretty well mm. in, in this certain kind of festival circuit and has helped me a lot. I mean, I'm speaking on this podcast because of it. I met you because of it. Um, and I thought, and I thought that this also helped them for in some way. I mm-hmm. think that, I mean, financially, any kind of sales, I'm not making any money off the film, but like prize money and all that stuff, like I have funneled that to these people. I was sending Huggle money that was made from the film. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that wasn't enough to stop him from, from doing that. And, um, and I'm kind of like sitting here now, like, why? What's it? What? I don't want to get close to another person <laughs> to make a film about them, and then, you know, for this type of thing to happen. Um, so that's why I was like, oh, this can be hard for me to talk about this film because I don't know where this film is anymore because I don't know my role in it really. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's something I think about a lot. Like, you know, I started thinking about, like, um, what's that French film? It was shot in, I think, in the Congo. Uh, Makala or something. It came out in, like, 2017 about this charcoal, this charcoal worker um, who's, like, he makes this charcoal and then he walks, like, like five days or something to another town to sell it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um and I think, and it's like all shot in Steadicam by this French guy. And I was like, I think a lot about that, that, like that guy went and played at Cannes and then, you know, a whole bunch of other festivals. And I'm like, what about that guy he was filming with? Like, sure, he got some money or something, but like, what's that guy doing now? The, the directors now, you know, so I started thinking a lot about this and I don't know if it's particularly helpful to always talk about this type of thing yeah. when you're talking about cinema, Yeah, but it's something that I'm feeling right now. And so it's easier right now for me to uh, work on other people's projects than, than pursue my own right now. Understandable, understandable. I mean, thank, I mean, thank you for your honesty and your, you know, openness to talk about that because it is, it, it's not easy to talk about and a lot of filmmakers refuse actually. Um, and I happen to know, um, a couple of other really, really, really important big filmmakers who still grapple with that a lot. Um, exactly what you're talking about. There's this line in all that passes by, um, when we're in the Akiran st- uh, station with Hagop, um, and someone says, Hagop, we should call you Hamlet. And, and again, this last time watching it, I, you had told me, you know, that he had passed and you put together this beautiful sort of playlist dedicated to him. But when I heard that line, I I just, it was like the first time I heard that line because it's such a kind of throwaway line. It's sort of in the background and the guy is off camera. And I thought, wow, that's strange, you know, to sort of think about that kind of character embodied in that man, you know, because I could see that in a way. I mean, even in the very beginning scene when he looks like directly at the camera and talks to you, you know, and then it's interesting that he just disappears from the film until, you know, 45 minutes later when we meet him again. Um, That for me though, 
what I'm trying to say, that kind of very substantive and profound homage to this incredible life force, you know, um, not that I'm trying to, you know, soften everything that you're saying, because I agree with you. But I mean, you can also think about those things too. you know, that kind of legacy um, that he even unwittingly left behind um, and how that could also live on. So that documentation of him and his being um, is also something of permanence, we could say, you know, um, I mean, anyway, I just thought I would sort of put my two cents in about that because that Hamlet line just like really startled me because I, I didn't remember it from the other times I had seen the film and only knowing or watching him on screen and knowing that he was no longer here, that line was really quite something. Yeah, it's actually something I have been thinking about since I heard it because Hamlet is actually, I don't know how common it is, but I've heard that name a few times in Armenia. Mm -hmm. um, I've met a few Hamlets. Um, Interesting, wow. And so when he said it, um, I thought, I thought, wow, are they talking about somebody else like that they, that they mutually know that's named Hamlet? Or is he actually talking about like Hamlet, Hamlet? Um, and I, I, I don't know, actually. I don't know if the man who said it, Arthur, I don't know if he has read Hamlet. I want to say that he has. <laughs> I mean, I, it wouldn't surprise me. Almost every Armenian, no matter what you know, class or economic strata they're in, are almost all very well read. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I would say throughout the Caucasus, the older generation is quite well read. It's probably a product of the excellent Soviet education system compared to the US from a certain time period. Right. Um, but yeah, they're all pretty well-versed in the classics. Yeah, I, I mean, Hagop is a guy that, you know, a lot of people talk about these moments that they have when they knew that this pursuit of making a film that you had something special, right? And I met Hagop on the second, um, well, I went to the station on the first trip that I ever made. Mm -hmm. um, my friend and translator and buddy and, all around, he's actually a filmmaker too, uh, also named Arthur. He was with me throughout the whole film actually. Um, and um, he told me about this place. He's like, I've never been here, but um, but I've heard of it. He's from Gyumri as well, the, the town it's outside of. So he said, we should go visit. So I met him on the um, first, I met, I went to the station on the first trip. And then the second time I went there, we met Hagov and it was just like, I mean, it was like, it was, it was the amazing because we knew that he was quite an amazing person mm -hmm. um, and a presence. Mm -hmm. And so that was the first time in the, throughout the entire filming that I was like, this is a special scene that I have. Mm -hmm. And that's why we just, I totally just like tunnel vision, just focused on filming with him um, throughout my time in Armenia. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, this, this kind of way in which you're, um, thinking about these things and maybe, you know, in a certain sense, because of this disruption um, globally that's happening now, I mean, maybe there is this sort of before and after way we think about these things, you know? I mean, again, as I said, it's like, you're one of the rare people kind of willing to talk about it. It's, it's, it's very strange, you know, it's like the, the one sort of very, very touchy thing that that um, people who are filming with filming other people's lives, you know, um, even if they're making a sort of melange of fiction, nonfiction, I mean, these terms too, for me are becoming less and less sort of meaningful um, in a way, you know, um, so yeah, I don't know if you, I, I, I hope you pursue, but I mean, I also feel this maelstrom of emotion is, is it's part of the process. I mean, it's, it's part of what needs to be thought about. Um, 
I mean, I remember when we met in Greece and we had dinner together, you know, it's just like, wow, he's such a sensitive guy, you know, like willing, but I mean, in the sense of like willing to say, willing to talk about, willing to grapple with, um, because there's always this sense that you'll say the wrong thing um, and therefore be, you know, sequestered into some other, you know, kind of uh, school of thought um, that isn't so popular. So, I mean, I really commend you on staying in touch with those things that, you know, that's the important struggle. And I, I, I really believe really important and great work comes out of that, out of that kind of suffering even though that's a bit of a cliche, but. Yeah, I mean, it comes up as well, like this, not just in when you're directing the film, but like, I mean, I would say, especially in the US, um, you know, when I'm filming on other people's things, you know, like people don't really want to be filmed. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> there's kind of this weird thing when you're working on something and shooting in a public space, that's like, you get this, I mean, it happens to me all the time, but you get this like power over you by holding a camera that you're like, I'm allowed, even though you're technically, it's legal for you to be, if you're on the sidewalk, like shooting people in public, you get this thing with on you that's like, I deserve to be, not deserve, I, I have a, um, like, I have an obligation to, 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 to film you, you know, mm -hmm. because that's what I am and that's what I'm doing today as my job. And, you know, I just all I hate. Sometimes I hate doing it because it's like I know that nobody wants to be filmed, and you're kind of forcing them to be filmed because it's convenient for you and not for them. Mm -hmm. If if they have if they can't figure out why what they have to gain out of it quickly, um, you know, it's yeah. I mean, it'd be interesting to to watch a film that's all moments of that people <laughs> refusing to be on camera or something like that. Yeah. Well, the weird thing about, you know, these days too, is that everybody is their own director. Everybody is their own manager of their own image in a sense. Um, yeah. It's very interesting times. Anyway, I thank you for this delightful conversation. I could like talk to you for another two hours, but um, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me, Martin. It was really wonderful to reconnect with you again. Yes, it was. It was wonderful. Thank you. That's all for this episode, listeners. Uh, we'll return next week with a conversation with Beatrice Senya. Lucid Dreaming is a production of Lono Studio, hosted by Pamela Cohn. If this is your first time listening, if you like this episode, do subscribe and leave us a review. Goodbye, dreamers. Dreamer, 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 dreamer. Hi folks, Lucid Dreaming is now on Patreon. You can support us to keep our episodes ad-free and keep us rolling in the studio. We'd like to give a shout out to our first supporter, Andrea, Andrea Kuhn. Kuhn. You can support us at different rates at patreon.com forward slash lucid dreaming podcast and get some cool stickers and maybe a tote bag.